For 24 years, I did serve as a federal prosecutor. I served with the United States Department of Justice. It was a real privilege to represent you, the people of the United States, in federal court. As Mark has already alluded, my, my practice with the Justice Department had many facets. I mostly prosecuted drug conspiracy cases, but I also spent several years prosecuting corrupt public officials. And for about 12 years of my career, I managed about 50 federal prosecutors who prosecuted all across the eastern half of North Carolina. Today, I am a partner in a law firm, uh, a firm of about 300 attorneys that, proce- uh, that, that represent people all up and down the East Coast. And I focus my practice on internal investigations and white-collar crimes. I'm privileged to represent faith-based organizations as they face constitutional and religious liberty issues and as they deal with internal governing and management issues. But none of these things is my real passion. My real passion is serving the Lord Jesus Christ (coughs) in any way that I can. And I want to use those skills, skills that I have, just like skills that you have, Skills as a lawyer, skills as a leader, skills as an organizer. I want to use those in the marketplace any way that I can. And so I'm hopefully looking every day for opportunities to do that. My problem is I often miss them. My, my problem is sometimes I'm just not aware of what the Lord is doing around me and what he is pushing me to do. Today, I'm not here representing the United States Department of Justice, and I'm not here representing Williams Mullen, although I will tell you, that like the good marketer I'm supposed to be, their name is going to be all over all the slides that I use. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you the real reason that, those, that that name is there is because it's a reminder to me and to you about what we're talking about. We're talking about being Christians in the marketplace. And right now, the marketplace that I'm in is that law firm. And every day, I get up and I go and try and figure out a way to serve the Lord in the context and the framework of that law firm. Some days I come home feeling pretty good about what I've done. A lot of days I come home, sure, I've missed the opportunity. But we get back up the next day and we go looking for that opportunity. You know, the the opening statement I made is a little bit of a teaser. I'm not going to talk anymore about the John Edwards case. I'm going to talk to you about an opportunity that the Lord brought to me while I was still with the Justice Department. I'm going to talk to you about what has become, other than my family and my church and the Lord, the passion of my life. Several years ago, the Lord brought an opportunity to me that I very nearly missed, and that was to serve him overseas in the country of Kosovo. Now, I don't know if you know much about Kosovo. When it started, I knew very little about it. Kosovo is in the Balkans. It's landlocked. It's just north of Greece. Now, these are proud people who live there, and they will tell you, even though they are not Christians by and large, they will tell you of their ancestry and that they are related to the Illyrians who Paul mentions in chapter 15 of Romans when he says in verse 19, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've had cab drivers tell me that they're aware of that. I've had police officers tell me that, and yet they tell me that they're Muslim. 600 years ago, the Turks swept across that part of the world, and converted everybody forcibly to Islam. They've lived under decades of communist rule. You can only imagine what it's like there. They were claimed by Serbia after Yugoslavia fell apart, and then there was a war, a war of ethnic cleansing that affected literally every person 
in that country. I've met no one there who can't tell you the story about how they or a family member was run out of their home, family members that were murdered. It is a terrible story that they can tell you. And the unfortunate thing is, is they assign blame to the Serbian Christians. That's what they know of Christianity. Today, it's a very uneasy peace that reigns in that country. They're struggling to build a democracy. They're struggling to find out what the rule of law means. But they're proud. They have a sense of history. They tell you that they're Albanians. They're, they're like Rob Provost. He's an Albanian now. That's what they're proud of. They love Americans. So it provides us an incredible opportunity to be heard. They claim to be Muslim, but they're really more secularists. They don't know what they are, and that's the phrase they will tell you. We don't know what we are. They're gracious, they're generous, and most importantly to them, there is great value to building relationships. So I want to take you back to August of 2008. I eventually will get back to Kosovo. But I want to tell you what was going on in my life in August of 2008. I was invited to the White House. I was invited to the White House to interview with the prospect of becoming a federal judge. And I've got to tell you, for a lawyer, any of you who are in the legal profession, you know that is a big deal. It was, the idea was I was going to be appointed for life as a judge. I had worked at this for about 10 years. I had tried to convince everyone that I could think of who had influence in the political system that I ought to be a federal judge. I was certain I should be. I'd finally convinced one of the political mentors in my life, Elizabeth Dole, who I'd worked for as a young man out of college. She was now our junior senator. And I'll tell you, she's a godly woman. I, I sat in her office and we prayed about this. And she agreed to move my name forward. And so there I stood at the gates of the White House, certain I should be a judge, took the long walk from the gate into the West Wing and sat down and was interviewed. We had a great conversation. We talked about all aspects of the law. I mean, they tested my, my knowledge. They tested my philosophy. We talked in great detail about what it's like to be a judge. As I walked back out that gate, I was certain I was going to be one. You've guessed by now I'm not. <laughs> but I was certain as I left there that day that I was going to be a federal judge. Now, let me just tell you as an aside, that very same month, I get a call from an attorney who, works for, who worked for me in the U.S. Attorney's Office. And what she asked me was, she said, can I go to Kosovo on a detail for three years? I didn't know where Kosovo was. I remember it being in the news, but I really had no idea what she was talking about. And as a good government employee, I didn't care. My only question was, is there going to be a backfill? Is somebody else going to come to take your place because I've got more work than we can accomplish? Yes, there'll be a backfill, she told me. Fine, go to Kosovo. I really don't care. We're going to keep working. But really what I was focused on was I was going to be a federal judge. I didn't much care. I had already lost track of what I was supposed to be doing because I was supposed to be running that office full of prosecutors. And like a lot of people, my mind had already moved on to the next thing. And as we'll find out, it had moved on to the wrong thing. And so I told her, that's fine. Go ahead, apply for the position, go to Kosovo, bring, let me have a backfill. That's fine. But 2008 was an election year, and as politics is, politics takes over everything. And so as I'm preparing to put the robe on, I get a call from the White House. We've run out of time. I think that's probably a nice way of, of telling me a lot of other things. 
But we've run out of time. They said the Bush administration is almost over. We can't get any more judges confirmed. And so there, out the window, went my career plan. I wasn't going to be a judge. And the way that the election polls looked, my party wasn't going to be in power anymore either. So I had the prospect of thinking for the next four or eight years, nobody's even going to come talk to me about it. And then I might just be too old because, of course, they like to appoint young people so they'll stay on the bench for a very long time. And so that whole part of of who I was, that whole part of what my goals were, my 10-year plan was gone. My wife can tell you, and she's sitting over here, that she probably was very tired of hearing about it anyway, so it was just as well. But anyway, that my plan is gone, and it also looks like I might lose the position I have. In the Justice Department, when you're a supervisor, you can be demoted if the new U.S. attorney coming in doesn't want to keep you. And so I'm, I'm going big places, and now I see myself falling pretty far. As an aside, this was a busy month, let me tell you. As an aside, that's the same month that here in Southern California, John Edwards was discovered with his mistress and their child. And I got a phone call, a very quiet phone call from the Justice Department. They said, open an investigation. Because, of course, what was being reported was all the money. That was part of what was happening. And so there was a lot that happened in August, but I'll tell you that what really was going on in my mind is what do I do next? I didn't believe that we would ever indict John Edwards. I mean, it's a political case. It's not going to go anywhere. Yeah, we'll issue the subpoenas, but it's not going to lead to anything. I'm not going to be a judge. I've got to go back to my job and wait and see what happens to me. But what I didn't know was that that phone call from that employee wanting to go to Kosovo would become my life's work. I just didn't know it. Let me move you forward to March of 2009. What happened between August and March was I got more phone calls from her. And what she said to me is, this job is too big for one person. And my thinking was, well, I'm sorry, I can't help you with that. Um, You know, you're going to have to figure out how to handle that yourself. She kept asking, she kept calling. And what she really wanted me to do was to come over, teach some classes, bring some other people with me, just keep sending people to help. We talked and talked and talked, and finally, I agreed to do that. And I'll tell you, frankly, that the reason I agreed to do it was because I like to travel. And it was a free trip to Europe. Just as plain and simple as that. One day before I left, finally the Justice Department sits down with me and gives me the security briefing that I'm required to have. One day before I go. And what they told me in that security briefing was absolutely untrue. They tell me, you're going to encounter a country that is closed to Americans. You're going to encounter a country that's Muslim, where everyone is, what they had me believe, was radicalized. You need to keep to yourself. You need to stay away from these people. Go in, teach the class, get out. Struck me as odd, but frankly, again, I'm not thinking that there's something more here. And so I I was willing to accept that information, go do what I needed to do, and come home. And the most important part of it was my wife and I, we were going to meet in London. We were going to have a nice little vacation. No big deal. So I get on that airplane. I fly for almost 24 hours, flight after flight after flight. I get there at 1030 at night. It's cold. It's snowy. It's dark. The plane pulls up to essentially a warehouse and deposits us there. And I immediately start thinking, what in the world have I done? Why am I here? 
I began thinking that as we started traveling through the streets of Kosovo. Things were not in good condition. There's still a lot of the effects of war. Most of the roads are not well paved. We go through gravel. We go through dirt. We go. Through, it was amazing. We finally get to the Hotel Victory. You gotta like that. You gotta like that. That was my first hint that maybe that they told me the wrong thing about the way the Kosovars think of Americans. <laughs> but they deposited me there that night, and I got an attic room. The attic room uh, was uh, it had a twin bed in it. Uh, there was a shower down the hall, and so I'm sitting there by myself, basically in the dark, wondering what I'm going to do. Now, being a rule follower, I did as I was told. All that week, all I did, and I had an agent traveling with me, but all we did is we went to the training, we lectured, we listened, and we went back to the hotel. Occasionally, they'd take us out to dinner, but we really interacted with nobody. We didn't really get to enjoy the richness of the people there. We just did as we were told. The training went fine. Uh, we lectured, they responded, and eventually over the course of the five days, there was a lot of back and forth. We got to, we got to have a dialogue. And I've got to tell you, as the dialogue was going on, it was very much in my mind that everything I'd been told was wrong. First of all, I was impressed with their police officers. They were better trained than I ever thought they would be. I was uh, aware that a lot of the problems they had were the same problems I had in my own federal district. But I could tell that we weren't really making a connection because standing behind a podium lecturing people doesn't really work all that well. Particularly if they don't know you, they don't have any point of reference, they don't have any way to judge whether you know what you're talking about, what your background and perspective is. And so it just went okay. But we, we got through it, and I was ready to leave. And it really didn't matter anyway because I felt like I was a short-timer. I was only there for a week. I never, ever dreamed that I would ever go back. Who would want to go to this place? This is not where we're going to vacation. And so it was really a week with no strings attached. And in my mind, the things that I was thinking carried with them the, the, really the irresponsibility of somebody who's not going to have to do the job. It's very easy to sit and criticize when you have no responsibility for the outcome. And that's sort of where I was. As the week ended, I'm literally packing my bag to go to the airport, and I get a phone call. I get a phone call from the embassy. Mr. Higdon, can you please come by and see us? I had not been invited to the embassy at all that week. I was kept on the other side of the gate for security reasons. Not really sure why, but that was not where I'd been invited. But here, as I'm on my way to the airport, can you come to the embassy, and can you meet with our rule of law staff? I don't even know what a rule of law staff is. But it didn't sound good. And I start thinking, as we all do, when somebody has called us on the carpet, and I start wondering, have the things that I've said somehow upset somebody? Have I upset the ambassador? Have I upset the other employees of the Justice Department who've already reported back to Washington, this was the wrong guy to send? I just don't know what's going on. And so I go to the embassy. I get through security, and it is, it is a place that is locked down tight. You would think the war was going on right then. So I get through security. They take me into the building. They sit me down in a room by myself, and we wait. I wait, and I wait, and I wait, and I wait. And finally, in come three or four people, only one of whom I knew, which was the employee from my own office. And she's not really smiling. 
They sit down, and, they, and I tell myself, look, I don't have a lot of time because I'm out of that room. I've got to get to the airport. What is it you need? And they, sit da- they sat down, and they said to me the most amazing things. They said, Mr. Higdon, we have no idea what to do next. We are in this country where there is no appreciation for the rule of law. We've got a government that doesn't, the Kosovo government doesn't know how to function. Prosecutors and police officers don't know what to do. Judges don't know how to rule. What do you think we should do next? And let me tell you something, the absurdity of that question weighed very heavily on me. (laughs) I, I really, I just, I had no idea what to say to them. How do you teach people about the rule of law who have no appreciation for where the law comes from? Who have no appreciation about the lawgiver that we all know? How do you teach that to them? And that's what the U.S. Embassy was struggling to answer. They themselves don't know the answer. And I'm wondering, why are you looking to me? I have no idea. This is what I call my Nehemiah moment. Now, I suspect that most of you are familiar with the incredible story found in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. It has become one of my very favorite sources of inspiration and encouragement. It's become a little bit of an instruction manual for me as I've been and continue to be living what the Lord is doing in Kosovo. Not coincidentally, I was studying Nehemiah in my home during the time period that this this trip was taking place. Every Tuesday night at 8.30, about six men we met, we met together. We've been meeting for years. And somehow it had fallen to me to lead the group. Other people had wandered out who had been tasked with that in the past. And really, what I was doing was I was using the resources that our pastor at our church back in North Carolina was providing through commentaries and writings that he would publish. The book we were working through is this book his commentary on Nehemiah. And if you open it, you will see the writing and the highlighting that I put in there in 2009. And so um, this was very much on my mind as I was having this conversation. The book of Nehemiah is a memoir. It is the story of a genuine, authentic follower of God who reveals his strengths and his weaknesses, his successes and his failures, He tells us when he's fearless, he tells us when he's courageous, he tells us when he's weak, and he tells us when he's afraid. And Nehemiah was the head of the household for the king of Persia. He was a Jew who was probably born in Persia because his people were there because they'd been taken captive. By the time the book of Nehemiah opens, some of the Jews have returned to Jerusalem, and Ezra has already been involved in rebuilding the temple. But Nehemiah had remained in Persia, and he had risen to a position of great importance and power. He was a skilled and trusted leader, and despite his uh, position as a captive, he had risen to the highest position in the king's household. He was the cupbearer to the king. Now, the cupbearer, I'm sure many of you know this, but the cupbearer position is much more than the food tester. This is the person that's essentially running the king's household. He is determining who has access. He's managing the resources of the household. He's the guy the king is relying on. But he also is at great risk. 
because as he performs his duties, the king, who is paranoid, watches his demeanor very, very carefully. If Nehemiah's demeanor changes, something must be wrong. And they were very much in the business of shooting the messenger back then. He must be involved if he knows there's a problem. And so the king would watch him very carefully as to his attitude. The book of Nehemiah opens as Nehemiah receives his brother and some others from Jerusalem. And they paint a very grim picture of the situation in Jerusalem. The walls are still destroyed. Things are not going well for the Jews that are there. We're in desperate, desperate straits. The city and therefore God's reputation and work were in disrepute. And so I think Nehemiah's response is very, very interesting here. He doesn't just take the information like a good government official. He didn't take the information about, uh, like I did about the woman wanting it to go on detail to Kosovo. He embraced the information. He internalized it. It became part of who he was. In verse 4 of chapter 1, we're told that Nehemiah sat down and wept, that he mourned and fasted. He began to pray and to talk to the Lord, and those prayers went on for four months. Now, I don't have time to go into four months' worth of prayers today, but if you haven't read those prayers, you should, because they are really a model, I think, for putting our burdens and our failings before the Lord while we recognize His sovereignty and His power and His plan and our, and our obligation to become a part of that. I, I love these prayers, and I have read them over and over again. He prayed for four months, and then he came face to face with the king. In verse 1 of chapter 2 of Nehemiah, we're told, Nehemiah tells us, I had not been sad in the king's presence before. This is a big deal. And I think it's an interesting reference, again, because he was the cupbearer. He was the king's food taster. He was the guy who was the barometer for whether there's a problem. You know, my wife and I, were, we went to the Reagan Library a couple of days ago, our first visit there. And I was intrigued when you go through the part about Air Force One, there's a video there and there's an interview with the President's steward back from the Reagan administration. And he talked about how they went and clandestinely purchased food for Air Force One in the, in the stores around Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland. They didn't want anybody to know where they're getting the food from because they're trying to protect the President's safety. We have cup bearers today. They just, they just work in a different way. They're serving our leaders. But they also, they're looking for warning signs. They're trying to make sure they know what's going on. And so Nehemiah, who the king hadn't seen in several months, appears for him obviously distressed and sad. And the dangerous question came. In chapter 2, verse 2, the king asked him, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? And Nehemiah, in response to that question, we are told, was very much afraid. But he bravely goes on to explain the dire situation that he's become aware of, and he lays out the plan that he wants to follow. Now back to my Nehemiah moment. The embassy presented me with a desperate situation. It's not a perfect analogy. There's a lot about the story that doesn't apply in the situation I was in, but they painted a very desperate situation, and they looked to me for some reason for an answer. And as I sat across the table that day, this is where my mind raced back to. The study that we were involved in back in Cary, North Carolina, in my living room. It was very much on my mind. And I've got to tell you, just like right now, I have an emotional response to the question, will you help these people? 
Now, when he formulated his, when Nehemiah formulated his plan, he had prayed for four months. All I had been doing for four months was praying for a direction for my career. He was praying about how he was going to help the people specifically in Jerusalem. I was praying, what are you going to do for me? I mean, that's the gist of it. I was praying for the wrong thing, and the Lord was planning the right thing. But we'd both been, Nehemiah and I, we'd both been praying for about four months. And so, as they laid this out for me, I began to think about that study. And I began to think about this quote that is in this book. It's from our pastor. Well, I've got this picture first. I want you to see that's just how dire the circumstances were in Kosovo. There are pictures you can take like this all over the country at that time. But here's the quote that came to my mind. The real McCoy of authentic Christianity is not the person who is self-assured, always together, never afraid. Rather, it is the person who is caught off guard, filled with fear and trembling, unsure of himself, and totally dependent upon the strength of God. That's where I was that day. I had no choice. And i got to tell you what happened next. And as I began to hear myself respond, and it was an experience that I, I just, it's never happened to me before or since, as I hear myself giving answers that I haven't thought about, that I haven't planned and prepared for, I hear myself saying things that I have no idea where they came from. They came from the Lord. He laid it on my heart. The Holy Spirit was with me. And I was very direct with them. I told them, I said, what you're doing here does not work. What you're doing here is wrong. You are putting people from the U.S. Justice Department that is responsible for 300 million people in front of an audience that is dealing with a country that has less than 2 million people. You're putting people from Washington who are used to making policy in front of people who are just dealing with whether or not they can get along. They don't get along because they don't trust each other. They don't know each other, and they don't know you. And so you don't have the right to talk to them. They're not going to listen to you. I don't know where that came from other than from the Lord. But that's what I told them. And I am surprised they didn't toss me out of my ear. I kept thinking as I'm talking, I can't stop myself, but somebody else is going to. And so I kept telling them, I said, you need to find someone that can mentor these people, someone who can come here regularly, sit down and talk with them, understand where they're coming from, get to know them, be a part of their lives, and then help them fashion solutions. And you can't do it from the arrogance of a podium. And of course, you can imagine what their question was, will you do it? And there again, I had no idea what the answer ought to be. I was authorized to go to Kosovo for one week. I had obligations to 50 lawyers back home, and most importantly, to the United States Attorney for the Eastern District of North Carolina, who, by the way, is now a member of Congress. And so I had no idea whether anything that I promised would I be allowed to carry it out. But I told him, I said, yeah, I'll give it some thought. But I think you do need a small team of people that will come here and that will be involved regularly with these people. So, I left there, I got on the airplane, and i got to tell you, the flight from Kosovo to London was a long one, not because it took a long time, but because these questions were heavy on my heart. And I, would just, I, I just kept thinking about, what, how in the world would I be able to communicate with people who've come out of a communist system, who don't know anything 
about the source of the law, don't know anything about the source of truth, how will I add this to my other responsibilities? How will we accomplish any of this? Well, what happened is I got back, I went into the U.S. Attorney's office, and I told him what they'd asked me. Now, I wasn't afraid that he was going to kill me, but I was afraid that I would lose face with him, that I would come in there. He and I had a very good relationship. We'd worked together now for six or seven years. He was the one who asked me to come to Raleigh from Charlotte to do this job, but I thought I might lose face with him, that he might tell me, we don't have time for you to do this. His reaction was very quick. If that's what you want to do, I'm behind you. I've got to tell you, this man is also a very committed Christian. And I think he had to know that the Lord was asking us to do something bigger than ourselves. And so we put together over the next few years, and let me tell you, there were lots of mistakes. There were lots of false starts. There were lots of changes. But we put together a training system that went on in the offices of these people until I left the government in 2015. We went into their offices. We talked with them. We mentored them. We learned from them. We talked as colleagues and as friends, and it was a slow process. We did not become friends overnight because I'm going to tell you they were very skeptical of us at first. There were lots of people who have a vested interest in democracy failing there. They want to go back to the old system. They were very suspicious of us. What do you want? Are you coming back? Are you not coming back? They had lots of questions written on their faces. They wouldn't dare insult me by asking me to my face, but it was just so a part of everything that they were saying to me. But we kept at it. We met with them. We we, uh, taught differently. We didn't lecture from behind the podium. You'll see we sat. We sat and communicated with them. We engaged in in, uh, role-playing. We engaged in all types of learning opportunities that were different And if it didn't work, we didn't do it again, and we tried something else. And we just kept at it and kept at it. We introduced new processes that more uh, closely reflect the way we do things in the United States, taking advantage of their high opinion of our country. And so we tried to change the way they think about doing things uh, under the law. Now, I'm not here to tell you that I transformed the country of Kosovo, because that's, that's not within my power. But we tried to do it one person at a time, one judge, one prosecutor, one police officer, one defense attorney. We would talk to them. We would search out those that were willing to listen. And frankly, we would discard those who weren't. We tried to quickly find the people that would be our partners and that would listen. And we found many of them. But most importantly, we became their friends and their colleagues. We got to know them. We went into their homes. I was very interested when Mark was talking about the number of people, the number of students who have never, who are from overseas, who've never been in the home of an American. I can tell you that that is a very important thing to do. We had 40 of them stranded in North Carolina when you couldn't fly back to Europe because of the volcanoes in Iceland. And what I thought was going to be a terrible extra week that I had to host them turned out to be the most valuable experience, and it continues to pay off today because my wife hosted 40 of them for dinner in our home. i got to tell you, I don't know where you live, but I do not have a home that's big enough for 40 people. 
but we did that because we didn't know what else to do, and it has paid off in amazing ways because they were in our home. They got to know my wife. They got to know our children. And many of them will now ask me how my sons are, how my wife is every time I see them. But let me tell you, it was not all roses. And this is something that I think we all have to acknowledge. There are going to be hurdles. The enemy is very active. And so as we began to work through this process, there were many, many hurdles. And I'm going to, I don't want to run out of time here, so let me just tell you, there were hurdles. There was opposition from people in the government. There was opposition from people in the Kosovo government and in our own government. The more success we enjoyed, the more upset they became. The same people who had asked me to undertake this eventually turned on us. One of the key mistakes I made, and I put mistakes in quotes because I would do it again, is every time I went to Kosovo, and I went 21 times, every time I went, I was struck by the fact that nobody in the State Department cared what I was doing. They didn't go with me. They didn't ask me anything about it. They just paid for the trip. I, I was stunned. And so what I did is that when I, on the flight home every time, I prepared a report so that there was a record of everyone I talked to, what I told them, what policies we, we encouraged, what um, techniques we utilized, and I would send it to the embassy, not realizing that every time I did that, it made them mad because they viewed it as a record of their failings. And so they began to turn on us, and they began to make it harder and harder. They began to pull back the money, but we just continued to work at it. Because I've got to tell you, by the time they started doing that, I was so committed, it just didn't matter. And so I really embraced Nehemiah's response. I didn't say this to them, but it became part of my thinking. So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. It didn't really matter what they did. We just kept building the relationships. And my own employees that would go with me, they began to say things to me. There's something bigger going on here. The Lord is working. It drew out our own employees who were believers as they became more and more dedicated. One of the the most vivid memories I have is of my deputy chief for drugs, who is not a committed believer like we are. We were sitting at a restaurant in Istanbul, and he looks at me, and for the first time, And all the time I've known him, he says, can we pray before we eat? And it was just an amazing victory right there. And so there was a lot going on. Now, I'm going to run close on time, and I want to tell you about four things. Because these these illustrate to me that this is important work, but I also want to tell you this is ongoing work. I'm not here to declare great victory. It wouldn't be my victory anyway. But these relationships are still being built. They're still in their infancy, and they still have to be tended. And so I'm not going to mention the names, but I'm going to show you some pictures, and I'm not going to even identify which person or if the person is in these pictures so that you can use this. But I'm going to tell you just four quick stories. As as you can see, we have developed good friendships, and so we've spent a lot of time in social settings, in relaxed settings. These people have wanted to show us their country, their homes. They've wanted to introduce us to their families. I've developed a very close friendship with one of the senior prosecutors in Kosovo. 
we've become good friends. But he is one of those people that it took two or three years before he opened up to me about his professional role, let alone his personal life. But eventually, one afternoon, I went to his office, and we had a meeting. We, met with, we walked across the street, and we met with the chief judge of their district. And then they invited me to go along with them out into the countryside. And it was, again, I, I've just got to tell you, there are so many opportunities that I have almost missed because I just, I'm tired, I don't want to deal with this, whatever it is. And this was one of those. But he invited me to ride out, and I knew it was going to end up with a, like a six-hour dinner if I wasn't careful because they're all about socializing and hospitality. We stop at a monastery. He says, let's go in. I'm thinking, why would these two Muslim men want to show me a monastery? We go in, and the monastery has a chapel that is three stories high, and there are murals that are painted around it, three levels of them. And this prosecutor disappears, and he comes back, and through the translator, he says to me, I don't know where he is. I said, who? He said, I'm looking for the priest. I want him to explain these murals to us. I looked, I said, well, I can explain them to you. I said, the first one is the Old Testament, and we talked about that for a few minutes. The second one is the New Testament. I said, the third one is the history of Kosovo. You'll have to explain that to me. <laughs> but I want to go back to the second one. Let's go over this because this is what I believe. He listened carefully and he said not a word. And we didn't discuss it again for another year. I go back to his office and I met with this man every time I went to Kosovo. We have become very close. We, we are meeting in his office. We're, we, the crowd thins as we deal with various issues. People leave, and I'm left with just him and another translator who I knew was Catholic. I, I, she had visited the United States. She was wearing a cross around her neck, and we invited her to Colonial, to our church. She came, and she listened. And so I, I could see what was happening then is that he's weeding the crowd out, so it's just the three of us. I don't know what we're going to do, we get in the car and we drive out to the church you see on the screen. He takes me inside and he says, I want to tell you something. I'm not Muslim. I'm Catholic. And we talked a little bit about what that means. And we talked a little bit about what the differences are between being a Catholic and being the kind of Protestants we are. We then went to a coffee shop because in Kosovo, everything ends with coffee. We go to the coffee shop and I had the opportunity to tell him that every Tuesday night we had prayed for him by name. It was an amazing experience, but that's where it stands right now. I have more work to do. The picture you see there are translators that I have worked with. We've had a chance to share everything through them. One of those translators approached me the last time I was there. We were visiting a school that my wife and I were teaching at that's being built by ABWE, a Christian organization. This man tells me that they're building it on property that used to be owned by his family, but was taken away by the communists. He is Muslim, but he says, you know, I think I might send my children to this school. We walked around for a long time, but he and I have known each other now for seven years. He's translated for me almost every time I've gone there. Other translators have approached me, and their questions are very similar. Mr. Higdon, you seem like a religious man. You seem like a man of faith. And then here come the questions. And the questions often are, 
I am so sorry what people of my faith did to your country, and my faith doesn't answer why. Why that is appropriate, why that's right, I'm looking for an answer as to what it all means. I've had the opportunity to tell them about my faith. I've had the opportunity to offer resources to them, to hook them up with our church's website so they can read about whatever their question involves from our pastor's sermons, and then we can talk about it. But these conversations are slow, they take time, and I'm in the middle of them now. Last October, and I'll stop here, last October I had the opportunity to take my family with me to Kosovo. Of of all of those 21 trips, this is the first time any of them went with me. The lady in the middle is the president, or was the president of Kosovo. I met her in 2009 when she was a police officer. She, the next year, became the president of Kosovo because no one else would do. They couldn't agree on anything else, and so the U.S. Embassy says, make her the president. She's the only person we can find who's honest and decent and not part of the corrupt political parties. When I, the first time I met her, I sat and had lunch with her, and we had a very perfunctory conversation. But the last thing she said to me was, Mr. Higdon, don't give up on us. I had no idea that a year later she would be the president of that country. And when we went into this meeting, we talked. She's very warm and gracious. And before we walked out of there, I said to her, I said, by the way, we're here teaching at a school. Would you have any interest in going to the groundbreaking of the school? I frankly don't know why I asked her. I have no idea what her faith is. The next weekend she went. And there she stands with the leader of that school, who is an ABWE missionary, whose her story is amazing. We won't take time for that today. She said to her and she said to me, religious pluralism is a good sign in this country. We want people of all faiths. I want to help you bring people of all faiths here. Well, I'm only interested in bringing people of one faith there. <laughs> but I'm going to take her up on the opportunity. I'm going to stop there. Well, I'll I'll show you. That's my son with the Oreo on his face. (laughs) But we're building more and more relationships. And I've got to tell you that more than anything else in our lives, this is what we talk about. This is what we think about. That's my office in Raleigh with the the flag of Kosovo. And because they all claim to be Albanian, the Albanian flag, those were gifts. And I'm asked all the time, are those still in your office? I tell them, oh, they're in my office because more than anything else, I think about you all and what we can do to help you. They just don't know the extent of what I want to do. So my experience is still ongoing. And I'm, I'm reminded of how much trouble they still have. This was the front page of the Wall Street Journal the week after we came back from Kosovo last time. Someone had thrown tear gas into the parliament because they're not, gonna, they're not willing to settle things the right way. We still have work to do. We still have a lot to teach them about the source of laws, the maker of laws. But I'm reminded of why we do this, and it's from your pastor here. The only reason we exist is to share the gospel. Otherwise, we wouldn't need to be here. And so I'm very convicted by that, and I am so looking forward to returning to Kosovo and sharing what we all already know with those people. Thank you so much.